and welcome to the first episode of Get Me Another, a podcast where we explore those movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. My name is Chris Iannacone, and with me is my co-host, Rob Lamorges. Hello, everybody. The most fundamental truth in Hollywood is that success breeds imitation, and we thought it'd be interesting to take a look at those movies that tried to capitalize on the success of landmark hits. So what we're going to do with each series is we're going to look at a, at a watershed hit and then look at the movies that came in its wake. Uh, one thing I think we want to clarify at the outset is just because a film came after another doesn't necessarily make it inferior or lesser. Many of the movies that we'll discuss are terrific ones, and they stand in their own right, but they a few even kicked off cinematic trends of their own, but nevertheless they might not have been made if not for the success of others. So for our inaugural series, we will take a look at the phenomenon that was Tim Burton's 1989 film Batman and the movies that came afterwards and tried to capture that same box office magic. Um, so Rob, what do you remember about the summer of 89 and Batmania? Well, uh, my personal experience, which has probably no relation to uh, discussion of the actual film, that is the summer that when I went to see Batman opening weekend, I was in the back of the theater and I was like, why did I get this headache? It's because I was squinting. That was the summer old Rob realized you needed, needed glasses. glasses. So, so because of if, if not for Batman, you might not you might not have ever seen again. You might have been squinting your whole life. It's it's quite possible. And I did I did go back and see Batman a second time with my corrected vision because it deserved it. I think I at least at least saw it twice, maybe three times in the theaters. And, and part of that is just you saw movies more times in the theaters. Like I can't remember now the last time I saw something twice in the movie theater. But like at the time, you would just kind of go. You know, it was it was just a fundamentally different. It's like I remember going with my dad to the movie theaters. We we wouldn't know what we we're gonna go see. It's like uh, what's playing and what looks good. You know, and and it was very different than I'm buying my tickets six weeks in advance uh, for reserved seating. It was just a fundamentally different way. And little known fact, back in 1989, it was a six-year window before it hit VHS. Uh, you know, a lot, a lot of the young people today don't know that. But well, and, and and you know, Batman was one of the first movies, not maybe not the first, but one of the first to debut on VHS at a sell-through price. And I remember, I think we, we were able to buy it by Christmas of '89, and it yeah. was I definitely Which was got it. Fast then, it was that fast was, then. It was super fast then. Um, you know, at the time, you know, the, the Star Wars movies might not have even been on VHS at that point for sale. You know, you could go into the video store and rent them, but the tapes were priced at a level that, oh, you'd, uh, you know, you'd, you'd pay like 100 bucks because the idea was you're selling them to video stores, not to individual people. Um, but, to, but to flash back to that summer, as you were saying, I can tell you uh, I was pumped for this movie. Yeah. I was so ready to see Batman it uh, whatever those marketers did, uh, it probably would have worked. But what they did do worked like gangbusters. I will say that. It, and and the marketing of this movie, the movie's a great movie, and 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 we you know we both have rewatched it recently, and it and I think it holds up really well. But it's so interesting. It was the marketing of this movie that was so groundbreaking, and um, you know I think it kind of took. You know, 12 years earlier, you had Star Wars, which had an enormous, you know, merchandising effect. But it, it didn't happen in advance of the movie. It happened sort of afterwards. Um, whereas Batman put all that merchandising in advance and used it as a kind of promotion. Where, uh, you know, that was something that just hadn't been done before. I mean, with Star Wars, I remember that you, you they, were, they were so unprepared 
for Star Wars merchandise that they had the empty boxes of action figures. It was like you'd buy an empty box in like, and and then like late six months later you get the action figures. Um, but Batman did all that up front, and and I think that was one of the things that sort of it, you know the movie itself was great, but the the way it was marketed and merchandised was unique. Yeah, and and I will say uh, with the film itself. Um, it really is. It came out in 89, so it's technically mm-hmm. an 80s film. This film, though, and I think a lot of what comes after it, uh, attempt to go this way to varying degrees, um, not necessarily in the exact path that Batman did it. This movie shuts the door on 80s action. Yeah. This movie is a re- uh, not necessarily a rejection of, but... This movie is nothing like what the big action hits of the 80s were like. Uh, In the 80s, there was, obviously they were not realistic, but there was the veneer of realism. Oh, this is, uh, you know, you know, uh, they're shooting regular guns and there's bad guys that are ripped from the headlines uh, and it's just very down to earth. And Tim Burton's Batman says no to all of that. Uh, we are going to stylize this movie like crazy, and we're going to take you somewhere that is not anywhere on Earth, and you're going to love it. And it's it's interesting, you know, that that you know the '80s action hero was sort of the kind of you know muscle, often big muscles, sort of Superman kind of guy, you know, Schwarzenegger, Stallone, and when they cast Batman, they didn't go for that type. They went for Michael Keaton, which of course caused all sorts of controversy among Batman fans at the time. Um, you know, it, it just uh, it, it was like, oh, they're casting Mr. Mom as Batman, and, and are they going to play it like the old TV series, and that sort of thing, and obviously they weren't. Uh, it's 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 very dark and 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 very you know kind of it has a kind of gothic atmosphere to it and it's interesting you say it's very dark I, I say it's, but it, in hindsight it feels kind of in the middle of the spectrum for Batman because later you would have you sure. know the Christopher Nolan which is very grounded there's the the upcoming movie the Batman Matt Reeves uh, Batman which which looks very dark as well so in hindsight you know there's a lot of still a lot of pop elements to Tim Burton's version. Not as far as the TV show. Burton is still acknowledging and embracing the fact that it came from a comic book and mm-hmm. even some of the more pop elements. Um, it, he's not rejecting the Batman television series necessarily. No. Uh, he's 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 riffing on it. Yes, he's he's ripping he's riffing on it. I mean, it, and it's funny because the Batman television series. It's strange to think of now was sort of this. It, it hung over Batman for the 20 years or so after the, the TV show before the movie. It um, was one of the reasons this was in development so long. It, it started in development in the late 70s, you know, shortly after Superman the movie came out. The, this went in development. Um, producers Michael Unwin and Benjamin Melkner had, had uh, they wanted to do a dark, you know, uh, Bill, Bob Kane, Bill Finger, comic book Batman, and they had trouble getting people on board because everybody thought of the TV show. Um, which, again, I love the yeah. TV show, but it's a different thing. Yeah, and, and the very opening of this movie, while effective in its own right for the story, very much tells the audience, A, this is not an 80s action movie, and B, it ain't Superman. I mean, you have that opening Dark Sky... Uh, the Danny Elfman score, which uh, is a whole other thread for all of these things. Yes. Uh, and it's just telling, this is very, very different. It's a different score. It's a different look. 
you get the opening credits where the bat symbol is revealed, where you're kind of traveling mm-hmm. through um, that. And all, all of that is, I think, um, very much reorienting the audience. This is something new that you haven't quite seen before. That that opening sequence, which is about seven minutes long, where he, he uh, you know, the, 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 you have the robbery, and then you have the two robbers up on the roof, and Batman accosts them, and, you know, the, the famous, Who are you? I'm Batman. Uh, I'm Batman. Um, the the opening sequence is is sort of this perfect little mini movie of Batman. Like, it, and I, I was watching it and thinking, well, today that would have been released as an exclusive IMAX preview, you know, along with whatever <laughs> Warner Brothers tentpole was opening about six months in advance. That sequence is so good um, that you mentioned. It's very operatic. Mm-hmm. But it also has kind of thriller and, and dare I even say, horror elements in it that I think, again, is not as grim and dark, I think, as we would now see Batman in a lot of popular depictions. But this was, for its time, I think, very, very different positioning your comic book hero in this fashion where it you are almost to fear him in that sequence. Uh, Later on, it gets softened. Well, you get that that shot where the the two the two crooks are in the foreground, and then just the Batman, the silhouette of him coming down in complete silence behind them, and it's like, well, that's this is this is not uh, you know uh, duly deputized agent of the law as you know as they were known on on the TV show. Um, so many of this the the things that this movie did were were sort of it, it, it's funny because it feels like a culmination of techniques that were you know going through the 80s and at the same time, you know, sort of leading into the next stage of where blockbuster filmmaking would go. Things like the the matte paintings, oh, the matte paintings in this movie yes, are they're absolutely beautiful. gorgeous. Um, the model work, Anton first production design, which did an interesting thing where we're not going to do period, but we're going to blend various elements from different eras from the 30s to the 80s and kind of give this vague sense of timelessness. Um, and just, uh, we'll see that again in other movies where they, they do that kind of sort of general blending of time, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and with that, I think there's very much a one thing that Batman has that some of the other movies that blend times don't is this is feels very postmodern. It feels more like a, yeah. a, like a Lynchian blending of times into a time that never existed. I mean, what, you've got the, uh, you know, some German expressionist elements. You've got Art Deco design all kind of uh, coming in, as well as some of the comic book design, including yep. some nods, I would say, to the to the old TV show, um, coming together to create a a gritty now that never existed. A gritty now that never existed is a is is a great way to uh, is a great way to describe it. That's I feel like that's something you'd use in a pitch meeting if you were if you were pitching this. It's like oh, it takes place in a gritty now that never existed, um, <laughs> and it was it was a smash hit. I mean, it was, I mean, it, it it was a massive hit both in terms of just box office, but in terms of sort of the cultural impact. Um, you know, one of the things I I, I always think of is. I had at least three Batman t-shirts that summer. Like, I, I, you know, and you would see them everywhere where people were walking around, you know, with essentially advertising the movie, but just with a, a t-shirt. I remember that was such a big thing was the Batman t-shirts. Um, you know, it was everywhere. There, there was a merchandising bonanza. Bat dance was a hit. <laughs> Bat dance was a hit. Um, 
Yeah, the Prince album. I mean, it's uh, it's it's you know is 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 you know it's it's the fact that Prince did an entire album for this movie was feels like it's unique to the the time. It's not the score. The score was Danny Elfman's also iconic. Uh, and how many more movies of this type did Danny Elfman do in the in the years to come? A you know, lot. We'll talk about some of them. A lot. We'll talk about some of them as we. Uh, as we get into it, uh, a few more that we'll talk about just today. I think it just had an incredible impact. It was, you know, I mean, in a movie, in a summer where you had sequels to Indiana Jones and Ghostbusters and Lethal Weapon and Star Trek and a Bond movie, Batman was sort of the the, the biggest deal. And it, 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 it just sort of changed, I think, the combination of the movie itself and the way the movie was sold changed blockbuster filmmaking indefinitely i mean that was that was it and uh it's it's that mix of being both uh more adult and serious but also more outlandish and ridiculous uh that i think has uh definitely is a through line uh in in a lot of things that that came after and jack nicholson's joker is sort of the perfect sort of emblem of of both he kind of sums it up in that performance where it's it, there's dark and serious elements. There, he's unpredictable and scary. And at the same time, he's outlandish and over the top and um, and incredible. I mean, it, you know, it sort of set the template for comic book villains for the next decade, you know? Yeah, I, uh, I had not seen this movie in a very long time when I rewatched for this. And uh, number one, I was I was delighted to find that the movie is still delights me. Uh, but oh, yeah. Nicholson's performance, obviously one starts to have the Nicholson that's in your head. When I watched this thing, I was shocked by how restrained his performance is. There are those moments when he pops, but the majority of his Joker is, uh, you know, very grounded. Yeah, and, and what a brilliant move to cast Jack Palance as his boss. Like what a <laughs> what a what a great piece of casting to cast Jack. You're my number one guy. Guy. It's a terrible Jack. Um, it's it, it, it's it, it was such a and then to kill him off. I mean, it, it's again this was this was Jack Palance before he won the Oscar for City Slickers, but after the host of Ripley's Believe It or Not, um, and he was just perfectly the tone was perfect. Um, this is one of those movies where all the tonal elements line up in a in a really really in a really really interesting and uniform way. It feels like everything is kind of firing on all cylinders here. Um, Danny Elfman's score we can talk a little bit about. I mean that was it it it's sort of what a, a a fundamental change from the John Williams Superman score of a decade earlier, which I mean is one of the all time that is also one of the all time great uh, comic book movie scores. But this really all the i mean all the way up through Danny Elfman's Spider-Man i mean you you know again another decade down the road you know he he kind of set the model of what superhero and comic book scores are going to sound like yeah and in a way that i mean it just had you had not heard something like this you know as much credit goes to Burton in the design of the film i just think without this Elfman score would it have felt to the audience, at least, felt quite as revolutionary. I'm not, I just, I have to say, probably not. And obviously, you know, kudos to uh, Burton for, you know, obviously getting Elfman <laughs> to do the score and working with him. Right. One of the things I went back and watched, because there was obviously a great deal of trepidation in, you know, beforehand. And, and there was, you know, again, a lot of the 
you know, the, the controversy surrounding the casting of Michael Keaton, who turned out to be brilliant and a brilliant choice. Um, but it, a lot of that criticism was silenced by the first teaser trailer that came out in 1988, late 1988. And I actually went back and found it on YouTube. And what, and it's really interesting. First of all, how much, how much longer teasers were and how much they, they give you more of the movie, but that the, they had no music at that point. They hadn't done the score. So it's, there's no background music to that initial te teaser trailer, and it's still kind of jaw dropping. You know, it's like, yeah. you know, they have a lot. Of, they have a lot of the great. They have a lot of those great trailer lines of, you know, like you know, way they get a load of me, and you know, you know, and what do you do for a living? Um, you know, and they, the way it's cut together. But that teaser trailer, I think, is where the hype does started. Does that have the, uh, or was it in the regular trailer the uh, one drink and I'm flying, and then you cut to. Batman, I think, flying with Vicky Vale on the line. Is that the teaser? I think that's that the, the original. Trailer? That's the original teaser trail. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, you know, you know, it's, and they have also Vicky Vale's line. What do you do for a living? And then they cut to Batman, um, you know, hitting on one of the goons or something like that. And it's 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 very cleverly done. Um, so yeah, Batman again. It it changed the landscape, and of course, what happens when a movie comes along that changes the landscape that dramatically? Everybody says, get me another. Every studio wants to, um, you know, wants to find their own version of that because that's, well, hey, someone's paved the way, which is in some ways the risky part. Well, let's follow up on that. So today we're going to talk about a trio of films that came out in 1990. Uh, all of them were in development before Batman came out, but very much capitalized on the success of Batman. Uh, and the first of those movies that we're going to talk about is 1990s Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Heroes in a Half Shell. Turtle Power. Uh, based on the Eastman and Laird comic. Um, this was a, 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 a movie that was turned down by numerous studios for fear that it would bomb like the Masters of the Universe movie a few years earlier. Uh, until it was finally picked up by New Line, who at that point was largely known for Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, this was a Golden Harvest production, was it not? It was a Golden Harvest production, um, which is... A wonderful film lineage coincidence. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. I love Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Um, you know, and, and it, was, it was a relatively low-budget film. The original Batman had cost somewhere in the, the around $45 million, whereas Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cost around, uh, like, 15 or th even a little bit less. Yeah. And... Um, you know, it's not as expansive a film, but it it comes from a lot of the same. You you, you had said earlier in our, our conversation, it comes from the same place in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's springing from you know when they say you have the zeitgeist moment and you can have uh, things popping up almost simultaneously. And so for this first batch of films, uh, especially the earlier ones like this, like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, it is interesting to see how that impulse expressed itself differently in uh, mm -hmm. a different setting. Um, and as you are saying, uh, one thing I remember about this movie at the time is that while you point out much lower budget, it was also considered, or at least being marketed as revolutionary because of the Jim Henson creature oh, yeah. suits on the turtles, which I will say for that time, and even now they look very, very good. Um, they, they incredible. And, and I was very excited about that. Um, and they play in the movie with 
with the other uh you know live action characters just just oh, yeah. fine no i i again i rewatched this movie i i saw it in the movie theater when it came out in 1990 uh and i rewatched it recently and i i enjoyed it thoroughly um and and you know it's it it you could see some of the common elements, as you say, sort of springing, uh, you know, from the zeitgeist at the same time. They kind of both opened with those city beset by crime montage, which is an 80s oh, yeah. staple when when cities were, uh, you know, you know, just in, inundated by crime. Uh, and that's a perfect, you know, perfect place for a superhero or superheroes to emerge because, you know, you can... Yeah, you could save uh, you could save the, the 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 person from being mugged or anything. It's kind of a perfect introduction, um, and also like Batman, it doesn't do the origin story. Like it's not it's not the origin movie. You sort of in both cases you get the origin in flashback, but not at the. It's not telling an origin movie the way we've come to know them. Sometimes the old ways are best. <laughs> no origin story is fantastic because these movies can just boom take off they put you in the story pretty quickly uh yeah. the pacing for both of them still feels i mean look they're you know older films but the pacing still feels pretty modern um and i i would attribute a lot of that to not having to do the origin story uh, which again is a break from donner's superman yes yeah donner's superman yeah it has, has a very different sort of uh, editing philosophy behind it, um, you know, and, and in terms of, you know, the first act is the origin and then you go to Metropolis in the second act um, and it's a different thing. And uh, it's I, I don't know how shocked you were when I, I was when when watching it again and I saw it edited by Sally Mank. I mean, oh, my God. That oh, was the... yes. Uh, there I was very, very much uh, shocked by that. And uh, and even uh, Elias Kataeus as Casey Jones, which I did not remember. Uh, I thought Elias Kataeus <laughs> was great. I thought Judith Hogue oh, was yes. great. Um, yeah. You know, they, 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 the human characters in that movie were not played cartoonish. You know, you know, in and I think that was what would change with some of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle sequels. Is it kind of became you know a live action cartoon? But there's some groundedness to there's that sequence when they're on the farm. Is there's some genuine pathos there. The, the scenes that they have together, uh, specifically without the turtles around, which, you know, is a handful. Mm -hmm. But those are some of the best scenes in the movie, uh, at least uh, from this side of puberty. Um, <sighs> what I would say is that it feels very much like some of the early 80s, uh, you know, kind of exploitation and horror films that used a lot of New York theater actors, where you go, mm -hmm. oh, I'm getting performances that I probably shouldn't be getting, but I'm... Uh, I'm going to take them. Uh, and so it, there's that very much almost, which sounds weird, almost that New York kind of independent film feel to it. Sure. Uh, which I do think keeps it, it is uh, it is stylistically a less forward-looking film than Tim Burton's Batman, I, you know, for sure. It feels very much like 80s New York. They're, even in some of the references that they're making, well, I think the... There's the a lot of pop like, culture references. They, like, play Trivial Pursuit, and they're talking about... Yes. Uh, they, they make a Ghostbusters reference, which would have been... I think there's a Sally before. Jesse Raphael res reference that, you know... <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, yeah, it's there. There's there's references that dated in a way that Batman steered clear of to kind of give a timelessness, and this movie was was not attempting to do that um, in the same way. But it, it it again, there's a tonality that does feel kind of like they're 
they're cousins, you know, they kind of went slightly down different paths, but they're, they're cousins to one another. Um, did you catch a young Sam Rockwell in, uh, Oh yes. As, uh, oh my God, he was, uh, I wrote it down. Head thug is the, he was the a head thug. Head thug, even of though the... he, he appears quite late in the film. Uh, he, he first oh. appears, uh, pretty deep in, I think, or maybe that's now, just uh, I saw him speak. Being that these movies are 30 years old, we're not, you know, we're not necessarily concerned with spoilers at that point. You know, you'll probably have already seen some of these if you are listening to this. So I, I want to point out one of the things I noticed in several films, and we're going to come back to this more than once. Uh, at the end of Batman, the, the Joker dies by falling from a great height off the Gotham Cathedral. And um, Shredder has much the same, you know, he goes, and it's a kind of perfect metaphor for the two movies. The Joker falls from Gotham Cathedral. Shredder falls off from the top of a, of a you know, pre-war walk-up, uh, you know, apartment building into a garbage can. And it's like, oh, into a, into a trash compactor. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the theme of the villain dying by falling from a, a great, it's, I, you see it again and again. Um Including, again, later this, uh, in one of the films we're going to be talking about later. <laughs> yes. Including in maybe more than one of the films we'll talk about later. Um, also, I think it's interesting that April O'Neil basically disappears from the third act of this movie. Like, she's gone. Yes. Like, they, like they clearly did not know what to do with, with her during the fight portion of the movie. Um, yeah, she. Uh, they, they couldn't figure out that role. Which is interesting because that... It's funny, given the time period this film came out in, I would say that April is, in many ways, an incredibly active uh, heroine in a turtle movie made for children. Uh, Absolutely. You know, fairly, fairly progressive, while at the same time, much of this movie is, uh, I think, cringeworthy from the modern aspect. There's some casual racism, casual homophobia. Um, Common elements at the time, I'm afraid. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, although, as part of that whole rapper is this has to be one of the horniest children's films ever. Uh, there's like <laughs> big, big Howard the Duck vibes coming off of this. I forget which one of the, I mean, all of the turtles clearly are attracted to April. And and, and not unreasonably so. Uh, and Casey Jones as well. Um, you know, who, who clearly, you know, there, there's immediate chemistry. Let's just, for, for the record, no movie is as horny as 1986 Howard the Duck. No, no. Not, not a, no movie for children, especially. Yeah. I honestly, <laughs> I'm going to say, I'm going to say across the board, anything that, there's no movie rated R or below that is as horny as Howard the Duck. Like that's, it's just, <laughs> there's, there is an undercurrent of horniness to that that is almost to the point of being upsetting. Um, you know. Not that Marvel is probably planning a Howard the Duck movie now because they can do whatever they want. But, uh, you know, at the time. Uh, but, you know, Howard the Duck is a, is a movie we'll talk about at some point. I don't know why. It doesn't really follow it. It doesn't really fit with our remit. But at some point, I just want to talk about it because it's so weird. Um, we'll, we'll do it. We'll, we'll, fi- we'll find a way. <laughs> a very special episode of, of Get Me Another. One thing I did want to bring up is that Kevin Clash, who was Elmo was the I... voice of Splinter, as well as one of the puppeteers. Uh, and, uh, which is an interesting choice. Uh, I got, he'd done a lot of other work, uh, yeah. you know, besides Sesame Street, Great Space Coaster, and some other things. The Great Space Coaster. 
Oh, one, oh. Of, one of my favorites is a. Oh, is a one game. of my no news is good news without Garrett with Gary Gnu. There are kids listening to. There's nobody listening to this yet, but but yeah, you know, there'll be kids one day in the far future. Some kid will come across this podcast and be, "What are they talking about? No news is good news." But if you know, you know. It, it'll get rebooted, I'm sure, at some point. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll get Amazon announcing the new Great Space Coaster. Can I? Can I be? But, but both both Rob and I are writers, and um, you know, I, 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 and that's well, we haven't talked much about ourselves, but at some point, I'm sure the details will come out about our about our lives. But I'll tell you, the 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 IP that I can't believe has not gotten a gritty reboot, and I would kill to do, is the Bloodhound Gang. <laughs> if there anybody holds the rights to the the Bloodhound Gang, yeah, send us an email, drop us a drop us a, a tweet or something because we are ready to reboot. We are ready for your gritty Bloodhound Gang. Oh yes. Um, yes. Speaking of more gritty, that is a perfect segue into talking about um, what was purported to be the big movie of 1990, Warren Beatty's Dick Tracy. Um, this was a movie I, I saw in the movie theater, but had really not seen in a long time when I rewatched it for, uh, for this program. And I had never seen it before. I, uh, watched it, uh, whatever, you know, the, just a week or two ago. I, uh, First time. I, I saw it in the movie theater, but had really might not have seen it since. Um, it's not a movie you come across on cable a lot. It's not like, oh, you know, Hey, it's, uh, it, it. <laughs> And it's an interesting movie. Let to set this up a little bit. If there was one movie that was set, that was was attempting to be the Batman of 1990, it was clearly Dick Tracy. Now, Dick Tracy, like Batman, had been in development since the late 70s. Uh, various people have been attached, including you know John Landis at one point, even Walter Hill. Um, Walter Hill was going to direct it for a while in the mid 80s and do sort of a very grounded version. Um, and then Warren Beatty. Uh, came on board and the movie eventually you know found its home at Disney and um, it was kind of it, it looked like it was kind of greenlit around the same time as as Batman it wasn't necessarily oh we saw Batman is successful let's do Dick Tracy it it but it, it was kind of you know in parallel where it really follows Batman's wake is in the marketing because everything in the summer of as as much as the summer of 1989 everything was Batman in the summer of 1990 Everything was Dick Tracy, but the results were somewhat different. And I think one of the big reasons is that, and I have to say, I'll just say from the top, mm. I really enjoyed this movie. It is such an odd bird, and I have so much respect <laughs> that when Warren Beatty was given this budget, and it was like, hey, go make your tentpole action movie, that this is what we got. And I'm just, you know, God bless you, Warren Beatty, because yeah, this movie is is does not follow the book uh you know it 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 is blazing its own trail and obviously uh to uh varying degrees of effect well first of all i mean this movie is beautiful to look at i mean it is uh like batman it has some of the some of the most beautiful matte paintings um and and just the the decision to make it uh this kind of they, they used seven colors, from what I understand. The production design attempted to replicate the comic strip by using seven colors and these bright primary colors. And and it looks unlike anything else. Like, it's genuinely... Um, 
it's genuinely original. I mean, in 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 the way that movie looks. Um, yeah, and, and uh, Richard Silbert, the production designer, who had worked with Beatty before on Reds, uh, and I guess was on Shampoo as well. Although that okay. was, uh, uh, but he also his two of his credits leading up to Dick Tracy, which I think would have certainly had an effect, were uh, with the Cotton Club. And under oh, the yeah. cherry moon, so we—that's where we get our Prince connection, right oh, there. Oh, there you go. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then when you're talking about the look, Vittorio uh, Storaro, uh, the cinematographer, who'd also worked with Beatty on Reds, uh, but he uh, and one of our favorite films, Chris Ishtar. Telling the truth, telling the truth is a dangerous business. Oh, you you know it, uh, um. but. I, I I must mention he also did obviously uh, Bird with the Crystal Plumage, Last Ooh. Tango in Paris, and oh uh, Apocalypse Now. So when you talk yes. about the look of this film, I mean these, you know, it's it's a heck of a team to be working with, and it shows. And and it seems like this is a, and also with the cast. I mean, you know, you have Jack Nicholson as the Joker in Batman. This movie has Al Pacino. It has Dustin Hoffman. It has it has it. Paul Sorvino, James Caan. It's basically got the entire actor's studio as the supporting cast. Um, you know, and, and it's like all of the talents of new Hollywood, of, of sort of the, the new wave Hollywood of the, of the late 60s through 70s marshaled to make Dick Tracy. And it's so interesting. Um, but what is equally interesting is, is the decisions made clearly after they finish shooting where they clearly decided to mimic the marketing and selling. First of all, choosing Danny Elfman to do the score, which is a great score, but is very much in the vein of of, uh, of of Batman. You know, rather than having Prince do the song, they had a whole Madonna album with songs by Stephen Sondheim. I mean, they they really they really went all out in terms of hey, we're the pedigree of this movie, and it won it won Academy Awards. It won it won the Oscar for best song and. Uh, Al Pacino was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for Big Boy. I believe, uh, I think some of the makeup effects may have also yep. won. Uh, the, the, and, and that's actually one that, that's very interesting to me. Uh, one of the differences between Dick Tracy and Batman, or this one of the similarities is that they both did have uh, mostly human actors but they also had some other actors who were in heavy prosthetics Mm -hmm. now with joker even when he is in his uh you know uh his his you know uh not in the joker white with red lips when he's made himself up to try to look like uh, normal jack right with his skin tone even then with that that big smile it, it still kind of plays yeah. And it's not jarring. I did see that some of these prosthetics, because they are intended to look like a cartoon version of a regular person, it's almost like yeah. a caricature as opposed to something otherworldly. And so that was there was a little disconnect there at times um, where because some of it feels like a comic strip come to life and other characters feel like a movie star. Right. The one that sticks in my head is Flattop. The image that sticks in my head is uh, is is William Forsythe's Flattop, um, who uh, you know. And, and there's something I, I think of all the, the 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 ones he's the he's the one that sort of sticks in my head as the iconic image. Um, 
it, it's interesting. I don't know if you noticed, but the, uh, when you have the blank, the character of the blank, the voice sounds mm-hmm. exactly like Leia disguised as the bounty hunter in Return of the Jedi. Like, exactly. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, pr- it probably is the same. <laughs> if, if it ain't <laughs> broke, filter. don't fix it. Uh, there's yeah. a, to me, there's a curious lack of action set pieces to this movie. And we, we talked about this a little bit beforehand. Mm-hmm. You know, Batman doesn't have a whole lot of action, big action pieces, but the ones that are there, you remember. You know, the opening bit, the, 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 the museum uh, bit, the Axis chemical uh, sequence are all very memorable. Here, it, it felt like they, they kind of eschewed, you know, big action set pieces, except for the very end. Uh, and instead went with montages. So much of this movie, like I, I'm, I'm watching it and I'm thinking to myself, this movie's got as many montages as Rocky Four. Um, it does not oh, have Rocky. Yes. It doesn't have Rocky Four's a montage within a montage. But at the same time, there's still a lot of them, and it's. I think some. I of believe it is, that's called the montaggio. A montaggio. Yes. Oh yes. Yes. A um, montaggio. Yes. Um, I think it's some of it is trying. I think to ape. The style of the serials of the 30s and 40s, I think, where you'd have, you know, uh, Tracy fights the mob, and you'd have like the little newspaper, the newspaper headlines flip over. Uh, there's even one scene where I noticed sort of the slightly sped up fight scene. The way you'd have, I think it's mm-hmm. when Tracy confronts the 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 derelict in the cabin. Uh, there, it's it's slightly sped up the way sometimes old serial fight scenes would be slightly slightly sped up um you know and, and i don't know if the thing about it is i'm not sure all of those things were to connect with you know the kids today you know it was it was i think the big miscalculation on disney's part is the movie's a, good, a very good movie and it did well but they spent so much money making and selling it that it had to do batman business in order to really sort of be considered successful commercial which which you know when you've made a movie that uh has madonna in like what the sheer dress uh thing where you're you're seeing a lot uh in this country at least that that's what you're marketing towards children and families you're gonna run into probably some some issues there with uh, expectations on the part of your audience going in versus what they're getting. Uh, You know, they, they went in, they went in with one expectation and they, they found something else, which I uh, have to imagine what it must've been like when Disney uh, first screened Beatty's cut of the movie uh, for that. Cause they, you know, they were already deep into the marketing, I'm sure. And they must've said, this is not the movie we thought it was going to be. Uh, it's a, it's a very good movie and it's, it's skillfully made, but it, it was not, um, it was never going to be sort of the big crowd pleaser that Batman had been, uh, the previous summer, um, despite their efforts. Yeah. And, and, and one of the reasons that I, I do love the movie, uh, but I think that it maybe didn't connect at that time is, you know, it was a time where people were ripe for a changeover, at least in the style of the stories that they were being told in film. And while this movie has a lot of the elements, it's rejecting the realism. It is going yeah. super hyper stylized, although this is more focused, at least on the maintaining the period of the comics. Uh, yes. You know, and that look. But so it's going in, in some ways the same way that Batman did. But one of the things is that Batman was forward-looking in how it combines stuff. 
This movie very much feels like a love letter to the past, which I also, other films later down the line in the series have that same uh, love letter to the past. They also were not nearly as successful. And, uh, you know, I like to pinpoint one thing with 30 years hindsight and just say that that's it. Uh, <laughs> clearly I, think, I noticed a single thing and so that explains everything no I think that's a great point and, and and the way Batman is this unique combination of it's not set in 1938 when the comic first came out um, or 1939 rather when the, the comic first came out um, it is it is a present day but as you say it's a present day that never quite existed here it is distinctly set in the past and and we'll see that with other movies that we're going to talk about in in weeks looking at you rocketeer looking at you rocketeer looking at you the shadow looking at the phantom (laughs) we're going to talk about all of those movies um because a because they they definitely followed in the trajectory of batman uh and they're also movies we really like um you know i will uh i'm i'm looking forward to uh to revisiting uh all of them in in days to come I was going to say, I think the acting in, in Dick Tracy is fantastic. Like, Al Pacino's really great. Um, like, he, he does a like he does a great performance. I also thought Glenn Headley, in a more subtle role, was really good. Like, they understood the movie they were in and did a great job in it. Yeah, yeah. Glenn, Glenn was fantastic. Uh, the scenes with Beatty uh, yeah. are, I think, again, some of the best stuff. And, and that... That all goes into how, even with the spectacle in this film, how it it still stays very human uh, yeah. in a way that I think uh, other blockbusters may gloss over. Um, this this movie does have those little moments, although it again is very fast paced, uh, mm-hmm. and I think you know moves, so it's not uh, it's not bogging down with itself. Uh, even the stuff with the the kid that he uh, yeah. you know Dick Tracy winds up kind of. Uh, you know, adopting or taking care of, um, that stuff, uh, has, you know, not a heavy weight to it, but it matters. You feel that it matters. And when the kids going out and helping Tracy, it's a real turning point in their relationship. Um, they're, they're bothering to, to actually explore the characters and see where they're going and, and have movement there in a, in satisfying ways. Yeah. Yeah, no, they, they, they um, the, the, the relationship of, of Tracy, the kid, and, and, and uh, Tess Trueheart is clearly the, the emotional core of the film. I mean, that's, and, and the film cuts away from, you know, Tracy, you know, it's, it's, it's really about, tra- it, it, this, is, this is the most expensive movie about work-life balance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but I, I liked it. I, I didn't, you know, it was a movie, it feels like it's kind of been lost in time a little bit. But I really enjoyed it. It, it was, it felt like it was akin to Batman in some ways, but it also felt very different. As you said, I think this movie is a movie that is looking backwards. Um, so yeah, which brings us to the third movie that we're gonna, we were going to talk about today. Um, which is Sam Raimi's 1990 Darkman. And if you want to talk about a movie that is both looking backwards and forwards, it is Darkman. And uh, yeah, first of all, uh, we should we should just Sam Raimi tried to pursue the rights to both The Shadow and Batman. And uh, much like George Lucas being unable to secure the rights to Flash Gordon, and so then making Star Wars, uh, Sam Raimi not being able to get either The Shadow or Batman decided to create his own character in that vein. Um, 
And he, you know, he took he drew a lot of inspiration from the universal horror films of the 30s and 40s. This was his first, not only his first superhero film, he would obviously go on to direct the the, the original Spider-Man trilogy and is directing the Doctor Strange sequel, but um, was also his first studio movie because Evil Dead, the Evil Dead, and Evil Dead Two were not produced uh, were produced independently. Um, this is the first of the movies we watched so far that's a true origin movie. Yes, um, but. That origin story is, it's funny, it's, the origin story is the story. Yeah. So the thing that causes uh, him to become Darkman is actually the inciting incident for the entire story. And so it doesn't feel like you're doing a separate thing. Right. Uh, it's part and parcel of it. Uh, something that I think he would use to great effect later on in uh, the Spider-Man films. Yeah, uh, I mean, this movie... Both for Peter and and for the villains. Right. This movie definitely feels like a prototype for superhero movies to come. Like, it feels like this is one of those things you can look back on in hindsight and say, a lot of the elements were here in Darkman that that we'd see in modern filmmaking. Um, It's interesting. This was the first movie I remember seeing Liam Neeson in. I've seen, obviously, he's in Excalibur, he's mm-hmm. in plenty of other movies, but this was the first movie, I saw this in the movie theater, and I rem- first time I remember seeing Liam Neeson. And, you know, and then obviously he would appear a few years later in Schindler's List and, and, and other, a long career after that. But um, And maybe the first film I, I think I remember Frances McDormand in, in a very un-Frances McDormand role. Like, it, it, you know, she, she's, it's, not, it's not the type of, of role that we have become accustomed to her playing. You know, it's, um, and it's really interesting. One one thing about this movie is that uh, it's it's funny. While it is definitely set more in our real world, but obviously a heightened version of it, uh, as opposed to the stylized uh, the stylized sets and costumes of Batman and Dick Tracy, this movie is more outlandish than either of them. Yeah. I mean, you've got and, and I love it. It's so and, and in that yeah. way, it's so Raimi. You get the prosthetic leg machine gun. Cars, oh my God. shipping containers ready to blast out. A guy with an eye patch. I mean, there's a guy with an eye patch. Fantastic. There's the scene where, where Darkman sticks Ted Raimi, uh, Sam Raimi's brother, up through a manhole and and waits for him to get get hit by a car. I mean, it is it is positively, yeah. it is over the, the cigar, top. the cigar cutting off the fingers, the uh, finger the collection. It's, I that's, mean, this is comic book. This is comic book mayhem in this movie. Yeah, this is a fundamentally weird movie, and I love it for being a fundamentally weird movie. Uh, it is definitely not trying to be all things to all people. Oh, no. I mean, and later when it's revealed uh, what Durant has the fingers in a cigar, like, humidor box to keep them fresh, I guess. Uh, he's not, the, uh, you know. The whole carnival scene. There's that whole carnival scene is mm-hmm. so amazing, you know, that it's so bizarre. And the, you know, take the fucking elephant, you know, I mean, it's, it's so, it, it's, it, it, it's, um, you know, the, first of all, we should say Darkman, as, as far as, as heroes go, is not the stoic Batman. Um, he is a, a, a not shy about showing his emotions. Uh, even before the attack, he does, isn't shy about showing his emotions. Um, you know, it's in some ways his relationship with uh, with Julie is he's pursuing he's the one pursuing marriage. It's the reverse of 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 Dick Tracy and Tess Trueheart. He's the the one who is uh, is 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 seeking a greater commitment and you know being a modern woman of the late eighties early nineties. Um, Julie, the character played by Frances McDormand, is not sure. 
whether she wants to commit to this uh, to this guy. Um, yeah, and it's it's a real shame that you take a guy with an open heart like that. And then after your terrible accident, you have some insane doctors uh, who sever a nerve so that he can no longer feel pain because of the burns. But that a side effect of that is you kind of go crazy and your emotions run wild. Uh, but it also gives you adrenaline so you have super strength. So you have this kind of this this, uh, you know, he was probably in how society thinks a more a man with more feminine qualities forward in the beginning. And after his terrible accident with the villain uh, becomes more hyper masculine, which is presented in the movie as a problem. Um, Now, I don't know that they were consciously thinking about any of this, but I find it interesting also given the time period that that is what the movie is, Uh, that, that, you know, that that rage is is a real problem. But it results in some great uh, like emotion montage sequences later later on in the film. And both of the villains, both of the principal villains, both the developer who is the main villain and then uh, Larry Drake's character, Durant, who is the, 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 the sort of the chief henchman, are much less emotional. They are much more buttoned down. And there's, a, there's an odd formality to, uh, to, to Durant that I think is, is really great. Like there's, there, there's, you know, he seems like a very proper guy, except, you know, he cuts off people's fingers and keeps them in a humidor. Um, but other than that, he's very, he has a kind of formality to him. Um, it's interesting. The bad guy basically wants to build Delta city from Robocop. It's yeah. Detroit. It's supposedly set in Detroit. Uh, although some of it is very much shot in LA and, uh, and, and this would make a great double feature with Robocop of, uh, you know, of, of developers run amok. Yeah. Which, which by the way, uh, brings me to something that I love, which is, uh, you know, when you see these things as a kid or younger in life and you, you think of how wildly inventive they are. But once I moved to L.A., uh, I found out how <laughs> not wildly inventive some of these things are. Like uh, the Cloud City in Empire yeah. Strikes Back. The, oh, like, oh, my gosh, that sky. Who would even think of kind of painting this, like, puffy orange sky? And then I came right. here and saw a smog sunset and I go, hacks. Ah. <laughs> you just you painted what you saw. Uh, and, and with this, there are so many... Uh, Movies written by people who, uh, once you're five minutes in L.A., uh, out here in Los Angeles, you know, Chinatown, all that stuff, and you're like, oh, yeah, I, I can see why the villain is a developer who's just running amok over the city, because that's essentially uh, what, what that goes is, on here. <laughs> that is the history of Los Angeles, is a developer run amok in, in, in you know, Chinatown is probably the, the, the ultimate example of it, but it is replete um, in movies written by people who have lived here for a while. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's just, there's, there's some bizarrely operatic stuff in this movie. Um, and what, what they're able to do, what Raimi is able to do, and, and I think it's, it's, it's one of the things that makes this movie very special, is um, he has this op- operatic over-the-top stuff, but he never loses the emotional core. You, 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 never, you never lose the emotional thread of Peyton Westlake. Um, it's uh, and it, this movie was not a, a high budget movie. It came out late in 1990. It came in August of 1990, late in that summer, uh, and it did very well. Uh, you know, not not super great, but it did well because it didn't cost a whole lot. Um, there were two direct to video sequels, uh, which I, I I don't think I've ever actually seen. Um, yeah, I I haven't seen those either. Uh, um, but uh, maybe maybe next time. Yeah. 
That's uh, it, it's 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 it really feels like a movie that is you can look back on and say, oh wow, a lot of the elements of the modern superhero movie were forming in Darkman. Um, yeah, well, and I think part of that is because, as you said, he was he was forced to go off on his own, uh, kind of with his own inspiration. So, I mean, you get so many elements the the my hands thing in, oh, in yeah. Darkman, which is. You know, Doctor Strange, you yep. get uh, he does. Darkman does more legit detective work and reconnaissance than Batman does. The, you know, detective yeah. comics Batman. Uh, there's elements with the face of the question, the DC uh, character who uh, yep. can uh, disguise themselves. Obviously, a little bit of Phantom of the Opera uh, DNA. A whole is lot there, of too. Phantom of the Opera DNA is <laughs> Invisible a lot Man. of universal horror. Yeah, is. Yeah, oh, Invisible yeah. Man, absolutely. There's a lot of universal horror DNA uh, informing this movie, and in, in, to great effect. I mean, uh, it's uh, the ending of this movie is is almost exactly the end of the first Spider-Man movie, where it's like I can't I, I can't be with you because you you know it would put you in danger, and and I have to do what I'm going to do. Um, you know, it, it's almost exactly that. Um, it's just a great movie. Uh, it's it's it just holds up really oh, well. Yeah. The one thing that I think I love most about this uh, compared to m- many of the films we'll be discussing is how overmatched and uh, Darkman is compared to the villains. Uh, he really is. There, he has way more close calls. He gets hurt more frequently. Uh, you know, Batman in that first movie is essentially does whatever he wants to until the final act. Yeah. Dick Tracy's, you know, he, he has some moments of of uh, of toughness, but uh, you know, I think he mostly is just successful when he wants to be, or you never helps feel him like out he's, he's such a good guy. You never feel like Dick Tracy is over his head, where you often feel yes. that Peyton Westlake is over his head. He does not know how to do these things and is figuring it out as he goes. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, it, it's interesting in that thinking about the ones that in their own way were successful uh, with the public. I think they're all, you know, artistically successful, but uh, neither Raimi nor nor Burton really made 80s movies in the 80s. Yeah. So they seem like the perfect guys to make this kind of pivot film where you are transitioning from one aesthetic to another because they were never part of that guard yeah. themselves they were always yeah, the movies doing that their own thing. you know that they had made you know the whether it was Be- big uh, peewee's big adventure and beetlejuice or or uh the evil dead films are very not the types of movies that were being made at that time so it, it, it kind of you're right it makes sense that they would be kind of they would be right at that pivot point and um, I mean, these movies, you know, they came, all four of the movies we talked about today came out in 89 and 90, but, you know, the truth is they, they are really, in my mind, early 90s films. Because decades don't begin and end on a dime. You know, there's a, a sort of gentle overlap. You have those years where you kind of have one foot in each decade, uh, what are the overlap years. And, and 89 was clearly one of them. 1990 was definitely one of them. Um, you know, I said like 89, 90, 91 were the overlap years between the 80s and the 90s. 88, you're still squarely in the 80s. By 92, you had transitioned to the 90s. But you have those period in between where you kind of have one foot in each. You have certain things that are ending, certain things that are spinning up, and then certain things that are just in, you know, part of the 
the transition period, you know, that are not, they're not going to last. And we don't, you don't know at the time, you know, um, that's, it's like, uh, you know, these are the Arsenio Hall years. They're not quite the nineties, but they're no longer the eighties. <laughs> uh, I also want to mention that both, both Dick Tracy and Darkman also have the villain falling as the way that they finally are, are defeated. Big boy falls, uh, from the, 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 in the bridge house, but he falls down. And here you have a whole sequence. That whole sequence on the skyscraper scaffolding is clearly designed for someone to fall. Like if if that if that sequence didn't end with a fall, then you're you're not doing it right. And and but clearly Sam Raimi is doing it right. And um, you know as as we see. Um, yeah, and you have the reversal. The villain is not the one who falls into the vat of chemicals that makes him into who he is. Yeah. This is the hero falls into the vat of chemicals that makes him who he is. And actually, it, what's interesting is because chemicals, so super 80s uh, to have super you know, 80s chemical reactions, uh, just like uh, and it's so right underneath it's ninjas as far as 80s yeah. things go. It's like ninjas and chemicals are one and, and two. sewers uh, like yeah. they're all there. <laughs> But the chemicals, even though it happens to the villain and he winds up uh, changing and getting uh, some powers from his own brain with the, uh, mm. the uh, skin that he has uh, invented, but also, uh, you know, he gets some of the negative qualities of a villain by having gone through that same baptism by chemical. Yeah. Uh, and this is where, I mean, you draw from universal horror where, you know, you have these... You know these these characters that dwell in the shadowlands between heroes and villains. You know, and and depending on your your perspective and 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 who you are, it's like you might view. You know, again, the Phantom of the Opera is a perfect example. Like, is 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 he a hero? Is he a villain? He's kind of defies, um, you know, defies character char, uh, categorization. But you know, at the same time, so does Darkman. Yeah, and I guess we should say, Darkman is a film where. Our lead hero is a mild-mannered scientist yeah. who, with he and his girlfriend, he winds up, because of his girlfriend's activism, uh, he winds up running afoul. He's in the wrong place at the wrong time as the mob's trying to get a document yep. that uh, Francis McDormand's character had. And that is then in the crossfire where he gets burned and uh, becomes... Dark man a little later because this scientist has also invented or is inventing synthetic skin for burn victims. That document being the Belisarius Belisarius Memorandum. Uh, there's yes. your, your tribute quote. The Belisarius Memorandum uh, is what caused all of Darkman. And the uh, the the synthetic skin he's inventing uh, dissolves after. How many minutes is it? Was, it? I, it, I was, it was 99 minutes. It could not get 99 minutes. Yeah. And uh, he, he has an accident where he realizes uh, when the lights go out or something that the skin doesn't dissolve because it's in the dark. Thus, yes. thus the name. Uh, yes. And so, uh, and you get some wonderful sequences of, of, you know, that stuff bubbling off later on. Um, oh yeah, no. There's some, and, and there's that great shot in um, where he, because he 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 takes on the persona of the villains in various scenes. He makes a mask that looks exactly like uh, some of the villains, and and uses it to to sort of sow havoc among them. Where he's caught with uh, with in the, the the revolving door with Larry Drake's character, and you have the scene where they're both looking at each other with the same face, and it's 
it's incredible. It's well, it's incredibly well done. Um, I, lo- I love that sequence. It's so fun. Uh, yeah. And just e- even when, and Larry Drake, by the way, is amazing in this movie. I, Larry I Drake is incredible in this. in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, l- later, later would play Dr. Giggles. Oh, yes. When you see him get that recognition in his eyes, when he realizes that what has happened, that some, that uh, he's being impersonated and he's got to go. It's, it's, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's a, it's a terrific film. I obviously, so, I mean, all three, uh, you know, all four of the movies we've talked about today, I think are all worth seeing. They're all really good. Um, yeah. Check them yeah. out for sure. Yeah. Well, I, I recommend them all. If, if this is, if this is your, the, the, the type of thing you're interested in and uh, you know, and they all have, they're really interesting steps along the way of of, of how, um, in particular, blockbuster cinema was was progressing as you moved from the '80s into the '90s, um, and 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 they all have they all have qualities that I think are really that that still resonate. You know, there's there's not a, you know, I think later series we will we will be able to to look at you know some movies that are not so good that were imitators of of uh, of of big blockbuster movies but in this case i think for batman a lot of the the movies that followed it were very good and um you know have become beloved in their own right one of those is the movie we'll talk about uh next week uh, is a movie we'll talk about next week uh which it was not a hit at the time but was has become very beloved in the years since Joe Johnston's The Rocketeer. They even uh, made a they made a children's uh, animated uh, show out of. There's talk of a of a of a Disney Plus series following up on Rocketeer, and I, I have to think that will eventually happen. Uh, a legacy I hope so. sequel to Rob, Rocketeer because yeah. uh, that's a terrific movie. We'll also we're also going to talk about the 1990 television adaptation of The Flash, which was uh, very much an attempt to kind of uh, put the, uh, the 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 aesthetic of of the 1989 Batman film uh, and to do it on a TV budget. And uh, it's a it's a it's a TV show I'm excited to talk about because I was a big fan of it when it aired back in 1990 and was very. Very disappointed when it was canceled after one season. Um, so yeah, that is it for today's episode of Get Me Another. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed listening. Um, again, we're our ho- we're your hosts, Chris Iannacone and Rob Lamorges. And if you enjoy our show, please consider subscribing and follow us on Twitter at Get Me Another Pod. And don't forget to come back next week for our next episode on, to find out what happens when Hollywood says, "Get Me Another," uh, and. Uh, Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody.